ready? And now we're going to talk about samsara. Okay. But first, we're going to visualize the object's refuge, or the merit field, sorry, and ourselves surrounded by all the bears, all the lambs, all the cougars, and everybody else, all in human form. And think of what it would be like if all those sentient beings stopped worrying about what the other sentient beings thought about them. Wouldn't that release a lot of energy for good if we stopped putting all the energy like a, you know, like a cyclone turning in on itself? If we stop putting all that attention on ourselves, what do other people think of me? And when we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, we certainly, it certainly isn't appropriate to be anxious about what do the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha think of me. Because the Buddha has equal love and compassion for all sentient beings, no matter how they act, no matter how they treat him. He will benefit them simply because they exist, not because he wants a good reputation or not because he wants friends and admiration. So we should have that same kind of attitude when we take refuge. Not putting all the attention on me. But focusing the mind on the object's refuge. So it's interesting to um, investigate the mind that thinks, that is worried about what others thinking about us. And to look at all the different elements in it. So there's our body, you know, and our sense organs that maybe we see somebody else. And then we have this feeling of I, and the other person is them. And then there's the consciousness aggregate, 
who perceives the other person and also who has the whole experience of worrying about what they think of, of us. So we cognize the other person with our senses. Then there might be a pleasant feeling if they look at us in a certain way like they think we're really great because we have a picture taken uh, with the Dalai Lama or Queen Elizabeth. So there's a feeling of happiness. There's the discrimination of, oh, I am with an important person. There's attachment. Well, there's um, inappropriate attention, thinking I'm so special because I'm with a special person. And then from there... Pride arises, I'm so great, I'm better than anybody else. Or if we made a big boo-boo with the important person, then the mind goes to, I'm the worst one in the world. Then you might have attachment arise after the pride, thinking we're so good, or we might have anger, depression arise, thinking that we're so bad, or being jealous of other people because they were with the important person and looked good afterwards, but we didn't look as good. All sorts of different uh, mental states could arise evaluating ourselves, our relationship to the important person, thinking uh, that this gives us status or makes us feel low. So all of that is tumbling around in our head. And all of that is impermanent, doesn't last and into the next moment, but we don't see it's impermanent. And we grasp on thinking, oh, if people think I'm a jerk, then I'm always going to be a jerk in their mind. We don't see how people's impressions can change, how their mental states can change, how we appear can change. And we also don't see that whole situation as a situation of dukkha, where we somehow think that uh, if we can look good enough and convince other people of that, then that's real happiness. But of course, that happiness is transitory. But when we get hooked into it, either thinking we're really super-duper special or really 
horrible. Then we even develop the thought, I am this. Yeah, I am super duper special. I am horrible. And it uh, reinforces the idea of a very substantial self, which in fact does not exist. So when we can look at this uh, whole sequence and how all these different facets of the five aggregates arise, uh, we can really see that it is all in the nature of dukkha. There's no actual happiness to be found in it. And when we become really convinced of that, then we turn our mind to the Dharma. And instead, we create, we cultivate ethical conduct, concentration, and wisdom. And leave behind the dukkha that comes from worrying about what other people think of us. So imagine for a moment being free of all that anxiety about what others think. See if you can actually imagine it. Or are we so hooked into always judging ourselves and evaluating ourselves in that light of how do we appear to other people? that it becomes difficult to even imagine not doing that. But try to. And then from that, go to having compassion for yourself and for all the living beings that suffer from that fear, anxiety, worry about what everybody else thinks of them. Extend compassion to all those beings. And in doing so, release the jealousy you may have for people who look better than you do or are seen to be better than you are.
and let people have their thoughts, good thoughts, bad thoughts. Let them have their thoughts, but it's actually none of your business. Why would you want to get sucked into that vortex? Instead, point your aspiration towards awakening and towards gaining all the qualities of the Buddha. And when you're sincerely doing that, there's no thought of what do other people think of me. And so we have so much more energy to really practice and progress on the path. And so may that be our motivation for sharing the Dharma this evening. quite interesting to do some more serious reflection on this because we see how much of our time and mental energy is just going round and round. What do they think of me? What do they think of me? How do I appear? Do I appear good? Do I appear bad? What happens? Oh, they think I'm bad. I mean, it affects the fix how their perception is of me, so I need to act in another way to impress them that I'm really like this and I'm not like that, but how am I going to do that? It goes on and on, doesn't it? Yeah, we really waste so much time. And other people's thoughts are just blips of energy. Nothing substantial. Yeah. And yet some people kill themselves over anxiety about what other people think of them. Yeah. Their status collapses and it's like, I've had it. You know, I can't show my face in public. I'm not worthwhile. I'm a failure. And they suicide. It's pathetic, isn't it, when you think of that, because you see how it's just delusion functioning the whole time and causing a lot of misery. Okay, so we're on page 238 of Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature, which is on transcendental dependent origination. And this is according to the Pali tradition. And this section gives us some way, some ways, plural, to investigate and analyze 
the, for example, the mental state of anxiety or fear about what other people think of us. Yeah, it's quite interesting how, how it is. Okay, so dependent arising, the lack of independent existence, and impermanence go hand in hand. So those three things. Okay, dependent arising, emptiness, impermanence. Those three things are very related and dependent on each other. So some examples. The present is different from, but related to the past. Okay, impermanent things do not exist under their own power. They arise due to causes that preceded them. The present is the continuation of the past and is conditioned by the past. Present things and events have their own unique functions, and in the next moment they give give way to a new moment that becomes the present. Those are just some examples of how dependence, emptiness, impermanence kind of pervade uh, all these things. We often think of impermanence as something negative. We are separated from what we like. Okay, the relationship broke up. My status collapsed. The stock market went down. All these things of impermanence we think of as uh Yeah, destroying our happiness. However, because things are impermanent and conditioned, they can change for the better. So that's an important point. If things were permanent, if things did not depend on causes and conditions, then we would be frozen into the the present. Yeah, we could never change. We could never progress, we would be totally stuck. So transcendental dependent arising clarifies this, and in doing so, encourages us to practice the path leading to liberation and to knowledge of the destruction of all pollutants. So liberation here has to do with seeing nirvana, and the knowledge of the destruction of all pollutants So pollutants are the afflictions and different defilements and fetters and so on that obscure the mind. And knowledge of their uh, destruction comes after the realization of nirvana when the the meditator comes out of that and turns their mind back to the mental, to look at the mental state that was perceiving nirvana and sees that it was, Uh, all the pollutants were destroyed in that mental state. So this theme is expressed in the forward and reverse orders of purified dependent origination. So remember we we covered that? You know, the forward and reverse orders, first of afflicted dependent origination, how ignorance brings karma and so on, and how if you have aging and death, that arose from birth, which arose from renewed existence, and so on. So that's the forward and reverse of the afflicted. 
then for the purified uh, dependent origination, yeah, we have if ignorance is destroyed, then karmic formations cannot arise, then consciousness doesn't arise, and so on. And the reverse order of that is if birth and death no longer arise, it's because, uh, I'm sorry, if aging and death no longer arise, it's because birth was overcome, which was because uh, renewed existence was overcome, and so on back. Okay? So it's interesting to go back and forth on them. Okay. So in addition, a few sutras in the numerical discourses, as well as the proximate cause sutta, uh, present dependent and origination in a dynamic way where one virtuous factor produces another, culminating in knowledge of the destruction of all pollutants. This emphasizes that spiritual evolution involves not just eradicating problematic factors, but also enhancing constructive ones. Okay, so there's a whole list, you know, there's uh, of 11 um, transcendental dependent horizon factors. Mm -hmm. So the presentation of transcendental dependent origination according to the Pali tradition, is expounded in the Proximate Cause Sutta. This presentation highlights the goal. Okay, so the goal is the knowledge of the destruction of all pollutants. Yeah, so once you've, you've realized nirvana, you've eliminated the pollutants. When you're in that realization of nirvana, you're not thinking about do I have pollutants? Have I eliminated them? You're solely focused on nirvana. It's when you come out of that and you look back on that experience that then you have the knowledge of the destruction of all the pollutants. So the presentation, uh, okay, I read that. Um, the steps for arising at that goal of the knowledge of the destruction of all pollutants um, the steps for arriving at that goal are then traced backwards. So, yeah, your goal is knowledge of the destruction of all pollutants. It has a proximate cause, liberation. Liberation has a proximate cause, dispassion. Dispassion's proximate cause is disenchantment. Disenchantment's proximate cause is knowledge and vision of things as they are. The proximate cause of knowledge and vision as of things as they are is concentration. Concentration's proximate cause is bliss. Blisses is pliancy. Pliancies is joy. Joys is delight. And delight's proximate cause is faith. So you can see at the bottom of the page it has a listing of these factors. Okay? Actually, uh, dukkha is the one that comes before faith, but it's certainly not transcendental, but it starts the whole thing. So at this juncture, juncture of faith, you've traced everything back to faith. Yeah, at that, this juncture, the Buddha makes an interesting turn, and instead of citing a virtuous mental factor as the cause of faith, 
yeah, he cites dukkha as the, the chief condition for faith. Because without dukkha, we would not turn to the Buddha Dharma for relief and would not generate faith in it. Okay, so how many of you started getting interested in spiritual spirituality in general, even, because you were dissatisfied with your life in some way or another? Yeah, you thought there's got to be something more than, than this? Okay, so uh, this is the point where we cross from, when we go from dukkha to faith, this is the point where we cross from mundane to transcendental dependent origination. So the mundane is the dukkha, and then these 11 factors, yeah, they are all leading up to um, transcendental. They, they're leading up to the goal, which is transcendental, although all of these factors themselves uh, are not necessarily, and we'll get into that. Okay, the Buddha, so the Buddha goes from dukkha, yeah, uh, to faith. And then the Buddha says birth is, because uh, we ask what's the proximate cause of dukkha, okay? So if we trace it back from faith to dukkha, then we say, what's the cause that caused dukkha? Okay, so uh, that is birth. And so from birth, yeah, then we, as a result of that, we get dukkha, suffering, and then that crosses over to start the transcendental links, beginning with faith and going through to the destruction of all pollutants. Is this clear? Yeah? Yes? No? No? Okay. So what it's saying is we have the the 11 factors of the transcendental dependent arising, the first of which is faith. So what causes faith? Yeah. We have dukkha. And because we're tired of the dukkha, okay, we look for the Dharma and we have faith in it. And then that is where we cross over to the um, transcendental dependent origination. When we look at uh, dukkha, what is the cause of dukkha? Birth. Okay. Of course, we could say ignorance. We could say a lot of different things. But here it's just saying, you know, and it's true. Once you're born, you know, dukkha's the rest, isn't it? Okay. But this is the way we go from our ordinary mundane way of thinking, afflicted way of thinking, to start practicing the path of going from dukkha to having faith in the three jewels. Okay? Okay. So the Buddha then says, okay, so um, the proximate cause of dukkha is birth, and the Buddha then says birth, yeah, birth is the proximate cause for dukkha. 
and he traces a sequential series of causes, then backwards in in the mundane dependent arising, backwards to the first link of ignorance. Okay? So he goes forward. This is how he's teaching in in the sutra. He goes forward again from ignorance to birth, all the other ones in between, to birth, to dukkha, and then crosses to the transcendental links, beginning with faith and going through to the destruction of all pollutants. Okay, so it's showing a, a way of how, you know, we're stuck in this causal thing of samsara, but there's that link of where we can switch to go over to start uh, practicing the the aspects of the path that lead us to awakening. Okay? Okay. So the way he sets it up, you know, you go back, then you go forward, then you go back, then you go forward. If you listen to how uh, His Holiness Dalai Lama teaches, he often does that when he's describing a sequence of how you gain an understanding or how something happens. He'll go at this direction, and then he'll say, but to get here, you have to do these and trace the causal back, and then he'll trace it from cause to result and then result to cause. And it's um, doing that really helps you uh, understand how things function together and how causality works. So maybe His Holiness picked this up from the Buddha. Yeah. Okay, so meditating back and forth from ignorance to knowledge of the destruction of all pollutants has a powerful effect on our minds and shows us that we samsaric beings can attain liberation. Okay, so now we're going to go through uh, all these different links in the transcendental dependent origination. So the first one is dukkha's, dukkha is the proximate cause of faith. So our lives are fraught with frustration and dukkha, not knowing a healthy way to deal with our stress, misery, and confusion. We usually seek to distract ourselves from it, spawning a culture of addiction to sense objects, drugs and alcohol, food, sex, entertainment, shopping, sports, news, and on and on, you know, even to knitting and embroidering and mowing the lawn and everything else, okay? Alternatively, so that's one way of reacting to dukkha in our usual thing, okay? We seek pleasure, yeah, we seek whatever pleasure we can eke out of getting distracted from our dukkha. Alternatively, another way we may react to dukkha is with self-pity, digging ourselves deeper into despair. Although we sometimes deal with our pain in a healthy way by building up fortitude, resoluteness, and using our talents and intelligence, Ignorance still obscures us from seeing that dukkha permeates our lives. Okay, so even if we 
deal with our, our dukkha in a healthy way, we, we still can't see how, yeah, how it is there in every single aspect of our lives. We're still clinging on to samsaric happiness as being happiness. Okay, so we can result with, we can identify with all this stuff, can't we? Yeah, having dukkha and then seeking objects of attachment to distract ourselves, having dukkha and then um, falling into self-pity and depressing, depression. Yeah, anybody not have both of those at one time or another? Okay. So there we are. That's our samsara. No matter how much we succeed in changing the external world to make it what we want it to be, we cannot bring our bodies, minds, or the external world completely under our control. Deep inside, a spiritual malaise remains, and a small voice within us says, there must be another way. Okay, when we go to the side of seeking the pleasure, yeah, and we get involved with all the things we're attached to, it usually ends in a mess. Yeah, if you have, you know, if you use drugs and alcohol, you know, you get addicted, that's a mess. If shopping is what you do to give yourself pleasure, you run a credit card debt, which is a mess. If going out for entertainment is how you get happiness, you know, eventually you're going to crash from that too. You drink too much or get in a wreck. If you think a relationship is what's going to bring you happiness, then the other person walks out on you. Yeah. Or you get tired of them and you're the one who leaves. Okay, so whatever we do in samsara to try and find a way to cope with our spiritual malaise um, doesn't work. Yeah, it just flat doesn't work. And so, you know, that's actually a a crucial point because some people, when it doesn't work, go back and try another thing, saying that maybe this will work. Well, this relationship didn't work out. Yeah, let's try another one. Or this partner wants to leave me. Let's see if I can talk them out of it. And you go on some other trip doing that. Okay, we've all been there and done all this stuff. Yeah, in this life, let alone previous lives. Okay, so, you know, that's a very crucial point. How do we react to that? Do we just seek more in it? Or do we say there's got to be another way and we start searching for what that other way could be? Yeah. And so here the Buddha is going to take us into what that other way can be. Acknowledging this malaise spurs us to seek answers beyond what we already know. Here we have to thank the illness the injury, the breakup of a treasured relationship, the loss of a job, or internal dissatisfaction and anxiety for spurring us to look more deeply at the human condition. 
In other words, if we hadn't had experienced that dukkha, we may never have looked for the Dharma. Yeah? And you see that in many people who seem to have a lot in samsara. Yeah. Actually, they don't. They're in the same cycle as we are. Uh, but they, because they're wealthy or famous, they keep doing the same thing again and again, which, as we remembered before, is the definition of stupidity, doing the same thing again and again and thinking you're going to get a different result. Okay, so dukkha, but dukkha alone will not cause faith arise. Yeah, because you see many people come to the Dharma. I mean, they're misery, miserable, they have questions, they come to the Dharma, they listen to a talk, they go, huh? And they turn around and leave. Yeah, or they say, what is that? I can't even understand their English. Yeah. Or I can't understand what what in the world they're saying. What they're saying sounds ridiculous. Attachment brings suffering. That's crazy. Okay. So it you know they just don't have the karma, and they don't have the mental openness to even even if they encounter the dharma to really understand even a even the tiny bit that's necessary to get you going. Okay, so dukkha alone will not cause faith to arise. We must encounter a reliable and true teaching that shows us the way out of our situation. So not just any old teaching, not the one for 99.99 special deal if you get it by Friday, says the new, new Age newspaper. That's not what we need. Often, those kind of things wind up to be just another way of dukkha, trying to seek our happiness through dukkha. We must investigate the teaching, the teacher, and the followers using our intelligence and reasoning. So not just like, oh, this is lovely, lovely, and it's so much fun, and yeah, I'm a Buddhist. Okay, um, not that. When we conclude that the teaching, the teacher, and the followers, in other words, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, are reliable and trustworthy, we take refuge in the three jewels. Our faith is not blind or coerced. So this is important. It's not blind faith. Oh, I believe because my best friend says this is a magnificent teacher, or I believe because it sounds good, or I believe because at least if I believe this, my parents won't get mad, or who knows what. So it's not blind faith, yeah, and it's um, and it's not coerced. The Buddhists are not uh, threatening you with going to hell if you don't accept Buddha Dharma Sangha, um, you know this kind of thing that. You sometimes get from other religions with people who are claiming they threaten you and they think that they're doing that because they have compassion for you. Interesting way of, of th thinking. 
Okay, ba- rather, yeah, based on inference, reliable, inferential, sorry, based on inferential, reliable cognizers and reliable cognizers based on authoritative testimony, our faith and confidence will be stable. Okay, so we have to use val- reliable cognizers. Okay, uh, do you remember what volume we studied about reliable cognizers in? Volume two. Okay, that was fun when we did that, wasn't it? People, people really enjoyed that. Okay, so that's the first thing, the, the, the bridge from uh, samsara to the transcendental dependent arising. Then the, the second point is faith is the proximate cause for delight. Through learning and contemplating the Dharma, we come to adopt the Buddhist worldview. This worldview does not demand submission to an external creator nor does it justify suffering as something that is good for us. Yeah. Have you ever been told that your suffering is good for you? Yeah. That, that's the one they say that often parents who beat their kids say this, you know, I'm doing this. It pains me to beat you, but this is good for you. Whack! Again, interesting way of uh, thinking. Okay, the world, uh, the worldview of the four truths looks squarely at our situation so that we know dukkha, abandon its origin, realize its cessation, and cultivate the path. Relief arises because at last we have found a reliable path. Have you felt that? After you've studied some and meditated, and then you just, you know, it's like, oh, finally something is making sense here, you know. And there's some reliable path that other people have tread and gotten that result. So I can just follow that too. It's really relief. Okay, delight which is a weak kind of joy. Okay, so in, uh, in our list of 11 here, yeah, faith gives rise to delight, and then joy follows from that. Okay, so delight, which is a weak kind of joy, arises because we have met the Arya's Eightfold Path, which now lies in front of us. Yeah, so really, you know, we haven't even accomplished anything, but it's like, oh, finally, you know, something that makes sense. I can go in this direction. It's like if, you know, you've been driving around looking for the right way to go and you're just going in circles and then finally you see a sign that has an arrow towards the place where you're going. You haven't gone there yet, but it's like, oh, Finally, I can stop driving around in circles. Have you ever been in a car with somebody who refuses to ask directions? Yeah. Now, I mean, now most people have GPSs or whatever. But in the dinosaur days, there wasn't. And you're in a car, and somebody doesn't know where they're going. 
and you say, why don't we stop at the gas station, ask for directions? And they say, oh, but I know the way. It's just around here. And you go just around there, and you're still lost. And the person stubbornly refuses to ask anyone directions or to call the place you're going and get directions. You remember that? Yeah? I remember that. Where I was, you know, being invited to to give talks in different places, and you've been on a plane for all day, all day, and you get off the plane, and you're hungry and tired, and the people don't think of bringing you anything to eat because they've already eaten, and then they're taking you to where you're going, and I'm having a flashback. <laughs> Yeah, and you just go around and circle, and they will not ask. Okay, but here, delight, which is a weak kind of joy, arises because we've met the Arya's Eightfold Path, which lies in front of us. Our hearts swell with virtuous aspirations, and we dive into practice, commencing with the higher training of ethical conduct. Okay, that's if we're practicing properly. A lot of us think that we are really exceptional disciples and exceptionally intelligent. And so we don't want to start the path with ethical conduct. We want to start it with Tantra. Okay. Because we are, uh, we have had insight into emptiness and we are quasi enlightened. We get applications from people who want to come here who tell us that. Okay, but here it's coming with a virtuous aspiration, not with ego. Yeah, and we we joyfully start practicing ethical conduct. So we don't see ethical conduct as like, oh God, another set of rules that somebody's imposing on me, and if I don't follow them, then I get punished. We don't think like that. Yeah, we see ethical conduct as something that's going to help us straighten our life out so we can uh, start acting in ways that are going to, at least, ways that not only will bring better relationships with other people and a better feeling about ourselves, but will stop doing all the actions that make us feel guilty and rotten inside. Okay, so living ethically and purifying our past misdeeds, we experience freedom from guilt and self-recrimination. Yeah, so guilt and self-recrimination, we have a lot of that, don't we? Yeah, oh, I broke my precepts, oh, my big mouth said this or that, oh, nobody likes me. It's, it gets into reputation here. Yeah. Oh, I really blew what I said. Now nobody likes me. They don't want to hang out with me. It's like we go back to high school again. Actually, we never really graduate from that mental state. 
You know, we graduate from high school, but caring about what other people think of us, we remain in high school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the low self-esteem that plagued us due to our mistaken actions evaporates and our self-confidence increases because we now make wise decisions rooted in compassion and restraint from self-indulgence. Okay, so have you ever thought of ethical conduct overcoming low self-esteem? Yeah. When you were younger, did you ever think of that? Maybe yes, maybe no. Yeah. That you know, what's what's a there's there's many antidotes to low self-esteem. What's one of them? Yeah, ethical conduct. In other words, if you stop acting like a jerk, you stop hating yourself for acting like a jerk. Okay. And not only that, our confidence increases. Yeah, because now, you know, we're acting in a way that where we even approve of our own actions. Yeah, we don't need others' approval, but but we like the way we're acting. And uh, our self-confidence increases because we now make wise decisions rooted in compassion. And uh, so compassion helps self-esteem and restraint from self-indulgence also does. Yeah. And that, that's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because we're so used to taking refuge in objects of attachment that restraining, restraining ourselves from that sometimes can be really difficult. But when we do, then there's a feeling of self-confidence of like, oh, I, I don't have to be a donkey with a a ring in my nose and a rope attached to it with somebody pulling me in one direction or another. Okay, and then the third, uh, you know, point going from, from one thing to another is delight is the proximate cause for joy. On the basis of following ethical conduct, we now engage in meditation. While some people prefer to begin with insight meditation, in general, it is recommended to tame the coarse afflictions first by generating serenity. Okay, so with ethical conduct, we begin to subdue the expression of the coarse defilements in our body and speech. And then with uh, concentration, we begin to uh, suppress these coarse afflictions. Here the word suppress is not the meaning of suppress in a psychological way. Psychological repression is not very healthy. Here, repression means that when you have certain states of concentration, then it naturally overcomes uh, the, the coarse afflictions. Yeah, it over, so it doesn't abolish them, it doesn't eradicate them, but it, you know, stays on top of it. So they can't uh, arise in a manifest way. Okay, so we want to, generally it's recommended to tame the coarse afflictions first by generating serenity. 
in the 11 factors of transcendental dependent origination, joy, pliancy, bliss, and concentration are all part of the higher training in concentration. Knowledge and vision of things as they are, dispassion, and disenchantment pertain to insight meditation and the higher training and wisdom. Okay? So you can see how the 11 cover, in one way or another, the three higher trainings. Cultivating serenity requires fortitude, effort, fortitude, and perseverance. As the mind becomes more concentrated, joy arising arises, uplifting and refreshing the mind and bringing strong interest and delight in the object of meditation. Okay? So just by concentrating the mind, there's a feeling of joy because our mind isn't like, you know, isn't like a ping pong ball bashing into everything going here and there. The commentaries talk of five degrees of joy that develop as the mind approaches single-pointedness. So the first minor joy that can make the hair on our bodies stand on end. That's the minor one, okay? Then two, momentary flashes through the body with an intensity likened to lightning. Three, showering joy is like the waves of ecstasy breaking over the body or flowing through the mind. Four, uplifting joy gives the body a feeling of lightness and in some cases can make the body levitate. And five, pervading joy fills the entire body. So the first four precede the attainment of the first dhyana and the fifth occurs in the first dhyana. Okay, so as you're developing um, concentration, yeah, you come to the first, second, third, fourth dhyanas. Those are form realm absorptions. And then nothingness, infinite consciousness. Um, what's the third one? My mind's going blank. Infinite space, yeah. So, yeah, infinite space, then consciousness, then nothingness, and then the peak of samsara, yeah, which is also called the lack of discrimination and perception. Okay, and each of those states, each of those eight, has a period of um, preparations where you go through different preparations, uh, quieting the mind, deepening the concentration until you get to a point where your uh, level of, of concentration bumps you up to the that next dhyana. Okay. So joy, then the point, fourth point, joy is the proximate cause for pliancy. So we've gone from uh, dukkha to faith to delight to joy and now to pliancy. Although joy brings great pleasure, it agitates the mind. Interesting, isn't it? To think of joy agitating the mind and eventually you know, it's something that you have to abandon 
in the development of, of uh, concentration because it agitates the mind. So joy may also bring subtle fear of losing the ecstasy and cause the meditator to cling to the experience of ecstasy. Same old, same old, isn't it? You get something nice, it feels good, then you're anxious about losing it. Okay. The restlessness, anxiety, and clinging interfere with deep concentration. Okay, so, you know, when we get afraid of losing whatever we've attained, we get restlessness, anxiety, we cling, and then that just all makes a big scramble in our mind so that we can't really focus on what we need to on the path. Okay, so uh, so those interfere with deep concentration. So as meditators progress, they come to regard the ecstasy as a hindrance to be pacified. So at first, it's a wowie kazowie, and then later, it's like, bleh, okay? So as, as joy calms down, yeah, this ecstasy calms down and becomes less exuberant, yeah, at that point, pliancy, the subsiding of uh, distress and unserv- unserviceability becomes more prominent. And there's two types of mental pliancy. You may remember this from when we studied the different steps to attain serenity. Um, so pliancy is of two types. Mental pliancy applies to the consciousness aggregate, and physical pliancy applies not to the body, but to the mental factors in the aggregates of feeling, discrimination, and miscellaneous factors that accompany the consciousness. Yeah, so these mental factors that are accompany the consciousness are what's called physical pliancy. Pliancy subdues the excited disturbance caused by joy, eliminates rigidity and sluggishness, makes the mind more flexible so that it can be used to actualize higher states of the path and brings incredible stillness in the mind. Sounds good, huh? You think your mind can ever be still? Yeah. It can be. It can be as impossible as that seems if your mind is anything like mine. It is jabbering all the time. Okay, so then the fifth point is pliancy is the proximate cause for bliss. So due to the stillness brought by pliancy, bliss, which was present before, now becomes prominent. Okay, so in this series of dependent arising, it doesn't mean that the next factor pops up exactly when the the preceding one ends. You know, the bliss was present before, but the pliancy was the dominant one. Now the bliss is becoming prominent. So joy is a mental factor belonging to the fourth aggregate of miscellaneous factors, whereas bliss is a type of pleasant feeling. So joy is comparatively coarse. Bliss is more subtle. 
joy is compared to the gladness of a weary, thirsty traveler uh, that a weary, thirsty traveler feels upon hearing of an oasis nearby. Oh, you know, there's an ice cream truck ahead. I can, I can go there and slowly my exhaustion from working in the forest will be overcome by a popsicle or a, what is it, the vanilla, um, an ice cream cone with the nuts on top or, you know, whatever it is you're craving. Okay, so that's the gladness, that's joy. This is an analogy, okay? It's not the actual state. And bliss is the happiness he experiences after he has bathed, satisfied his thirst, and lies down to rest in the shade of the, of the trees. Okay, so bliss is you've had your, you know, your hot fudge sundae, your whatever it is. Yeah, you're full. You lie down on this nice cushy mattress and you start dozing. Um, in the present state, stage, joy is present, but due to pliancy, it has been toned down and bliss is dominant. So the, the joy... Yeah, it, it agitates the mind. It has an agitating factor because it's like, it's too high. You know, when you get like too happy? Yeah, so you're, you're too glad and the mind is shaking. And so it, uh, pliancy helps to tone it down. And then bliss, which is a much calmer, peaceful, stable uh, feeling arises. Okay. So it's interesting because joy is a mental factor belonging in the fourth aggregate. Yeah, pliancy is a virtuous mental factor, but it's also part of the fourth uh, aggregate, whereas bliss is a type of pleasant feeling. Mm-hmm. So bliss here refers to the bliss experienced with access concentration, which is prior to the first dhyana. So remember I said each of the uh, stages of the eight meditative absorptions has a period of preparation. So um, access concentration is uh, one of the stages, uh, kind of the culmination of the stages right before you actually enter the first dhyana. So access concentration arises when the five hindrances have been suppressed and the counterpart sign, the radiant inner object of meditation arises. Okay, do you remember what the five hindrances are? We've been through them. Mm-hmm. No, that's from the from uh, my Maitreya's presentation. Yeah. So this is another presentation that is. Uh, present in the Pali tradition and also the Sanskrit tradition. Huh? Sensual desire. Malice. Yeah, sloth and torpor. Okay. Restlessness and regret, remorse and doubt. Okay, so those five. 
They're enough to handle, huh? (laughs) Okay, so access concentration arises when those five have been suppressed. And then the way the Pali tradition describes as... uh, the way of attaining shamatha. And uh, we'll go through this in depth in volume four, okay? Is that there's a counterpart sign, the radiant inner object of meditation that arises. So you may start out your meditation meditating on a kasina. A kasina can be an external object, uh, like color or one of the four elements. So you may focus, let's say you have a a casina of red or blue or whatever, you you look at the color in the same way that we would look at a Buddhist statue, and then you close your eyes and you hold that image in your mind, okay? And when you succeed in doing that with a certain degree of of, uh, concentration, then your object changes quite naturally from being that that color to this counterpart sign, which uh, which is a nimitta. It's a little like light or glittery thing. Not not something that's flashing, but uh, something, yeah, like a small light or small something, you know, that appears to the mind, and so your concentration then goes to the namita, okay? Namita means sign, so it's here, okay? So I, uh, it would be interesting to see, uh, you know, the practitioners who use the Buddha as the object of meditation, if at a certain point uh, the object ceases to be the whole figure of the Buddha and becomes some tiny you know, sign, or if the whole object of the Buddha uh, becomes that sign. I don't know. It's just a question that's arisen in my mind. So it would be interesting to see if the two traditions describe this in a similar way. Although subduing the hindrances began with faith and delight, they now have been suppressed more firmly so that the mind can remain concentrated and free from constant disruption. The meditator has much greater control of his or her mind, and the bliss of being released from the hindrances, even temporarily during access concentration, is compared to the relief and joy someone feels upon being freed from slavery. Yeah, when you think of just the, when this, the, uh, those five hindrances, which so much cause, throw us into confusion in our mind, when those have been suppressed and replaced by bliss, I mean, that must be an incredible feeling of relief. Like, ah, now, oh, now I can breathe. There isn't all this other stuff. Okay. Yeah, so it's comparable to the joy somebody feels upon being freed from this from slavery, which here it's slavery to the the course afflictions. Then the sixth point is bliss is the proximate cause for concentration. 
As the bliss of access concentration expands, it permeates the mind and the hindrances to the unification of the mind vanish. By unification of the mind, it, it means that all the, the primary mind and the mental factors all kind of coalesce to go in the same direction. They're on the same object. Okay, so the mind unifies like that. Uh, so, as the bliss of access concentration expands, it permeates the mind and the hindrances to the unification of the mind vanish. At this point, the mind enters into absorption or full concentration. And, and here it's the first dhyana. In general, concentration is a mental factor present in many mental states, including both access and absorption. It functions to unite the mind on a single object and to enable the consciousness and its accompanying mental factors to operate in harmony, making them steadier and more focused. So that's how concentration functions. Okay, so it actually does it's not just you're on the object it but it it functions to unite all these different parts of the mind um, making them steadier and more focused while concentration has been increasing all along why all along while cultivating serenity in the dhyanas it becomes especially strong the mind becomes very still like a still lake on a cloudless night that re clearly reflects the trees and the moon. No discursive thought disturbs the mind's stillness. Whew. During access concentration, the dynamic factors, yeah, in investigation, analysis, joy, bliss, and one-pointedness, are strong enough to suppress the five hindrances, but not to place the mind in full meditative absorption. Okay, that's because it's you're in access concentration, not in the actual absorption. Okay. With the attainment of the first dhyana, the dhyanic factors are strong enough to do this, to those five dhyanic factors can make the mind be in the dhyana or I should say attain that, that level of, of concentration. Now the mind is so concentrated that any feeling of separation from the meditation object vanishes. From the first dhyana, a meditator can proceed sequentially to attain the second, third, and fourth dhyanas, and then uh, to the four formless absorptions, which are very refined states of mind and meditative absorption. Okay, so let's pause here. Questions, comments? When talking about transcendental dependent origination, can we equate dukkha with the 12th link, aging and death? Uh, dukkha is actually all of the 12 links. Okay, but here it's saying that the, the cause of dukkha is birth. Yeah, but then dukkha gives rise to faith. 
I don't know that this is an answerable question, but maybe a comment. Because <clears throat> you, I, I mean, seeing this, it's so kind of amazing, and you also can't imagine what level of development the mind must go through in order to realize this. And yet I've heard, sort of overheard, among um, practitioners of mindfulness meditation mm-hmm. that they are doing dhyana practice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, which I go, mm-hmm. But, but maybe they are, I don't know. But anyway, in, in the use of that term in general in Buddhist circles, or can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I find it confusing. Okay. Yeah, it is confusing. Um, the people following the Pali tradition talk about dhyana a lot. Yeah. Because they really, uh, their main practice is the, the three higher trainings. So ethical conduct, they take precepts, except the lay people maybe keep the five precepts and then go in, into concentration. And gaining concentration is, is, uh, really a big point of their meditation. And so they do this, uh, kind of right from the beginning. Whereas we might start with Lam Rim and, trying to get a Buddhist worldview and understanding what dukkha is and developing renunciation from it, some people uh, go for, you know, the the concentration. We had a young man here um, a f- la- last summer, yeah, who just, like, he left here because he wanted to go to, to another place because he said he was seeking the bliss, you know? And if I don't want to waste my time with other stuff, I want the bliss. So, Mazeltov, go for it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So it, it's emphasis, emphasized in that way in those circles. Now, the people who might say they're doing mindfulness and they're practicing the, the dhyanas, those are probably not the secular mindfulness people. Because secular mindfulness doesn't talk about dhyanas or things, you know, Buddhist type of things. Um, so it's probably people practicing the path. And what I've noticed is, um, we'll put it this way. One uh, Theravada friend of mine, one monk, said that the way the Pali texts describe uh, the Diana state. It sounds like so super high that it's almost unbelievable. But he thinks, and apparently other people in the West, I don't know that this happens in Asia. I have only heard this from Westerners. Okay. That, uh, that, uh, Diana actually occurs before what the texts describe as dhyana. Okay. So, for example, I knew uh, one one woman who was, there was um, somebody doing a lot of, of concentration retreats at one retreat center where I usually taught. And uh, she was doing those. And... I think just in one after one or two of those retreats, then she started. She, you know, she would be walking, and then she would stop and just go like that. You know, like her eyes stopped moving, and 
you know, her mind was somewhere else. And then maybe she'd come back and walk a little bit more and then like this. And the Western meditation teacher, when she went to him and said, this is happening to me, he said, oh, you're going into dhyana. I, in, from what I've heard in our texts about what dhyana is, uh, that behavior is not indicative of dhyana. Yeah, it's indicative of spacing out. Okay. Um, but that's what she was told it was. So, yeah, so there's a certain segment of, and this was a lay teacher who told her that. So there's a certain segment of uh, Western Buddhist teachers that teach dhyana in, in that way. You know, and then I imagine there's others that really follow the textual description. Okay. The, the thing is, with any kind of meditative experience, you can give it any label you want to, but whether it actually is the definition of that label is another state, is a, you know, a completely other th- thing. But as Westerners, you know, we like when we have a, a kind of exotic experience to attach a uh, a kind of far out name to it, and then that gives us confidence, like we're getting somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I'll admit something quite humiliating. When I was a, a baby beginner in Buddhism. What? Let me think what it was. Yeah, I was meditating, and my mind got a little bit quiet, and then I started noticing all these other kind of thoughts popping up. And I thought, oh, that's the subtle mind I've heard about. You know, that was the furthest thing from the subtle mind. But, you know, you hear a term and then you have some experience and, oh, my mind is quieter and there's all these thoughts. Oh, that must be the subtle mind. Yeah? So so then the question comes, well, how do you deal with those experiences when they happen? Uh, So here's a story. One of my friends in Dharmasala... um, he told me the story of one of his friends who went to see a, a meditator who uh, somehow the rumor had gone along that he had had a vision of Tara. So this Westerner went to see, you know, like, I want to go see the, the meditator who had a vision of Tara. This must be exciting. I want to hear all about it. So he asked uh, the Tibetan meditator about it. And he said, uh, yeah, I had the vision of, of uh, what appeared to be Tara, but I don't know if it was really Tara. You know? In other words, he wasn't grasping onto it and saying, oh, look, goody, goody, Tara appeared to me, I must be special. He was just, you know, yes, 
uh, that happened. And I don't really know whether it was Tara or not, but that doesn't matter. I'm going to keep on practicing. You know. So I think he was probably encouraged by having that experience, but he wasn't ready to label it as some kind of realization or another. And I think that's kind of the best way to to regard these experiences. Because we've all had kind of unusual experiences in meditation, haven't we? Haven't you had some kind of something that's a bit unusual? It's like, maybe, 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 you know. I had another friend who... um, who told me that he uh, was having just these things of bliss, you know, go, she said, my kundalini is coming up and I'm just having so much incredible bliss. And even so that my body is arching, you know, with the bliss. So I called Geshe Zopa, you know, because this guy wanted to know what it was. And I called Geshe Zopa and asked him, you know, Geshe, what do you think it is? And Geshe-la said, it's just sexual energy. Yeah? So, again, uh, yeah. I think it, it always points to uh, humility rather than speciality of me. Anything else? I'll give you another tip because you'll you'll certainly come across this. Um, People who have uh, quite incredible dreams, you know, as we know, some people like don't remember their dreams. Some people remember all their dreams. Some people pay a lot of attention to their dreams. Other people don't pay attention to their dreams. So, uh, but sometimes people have these, you know, kind of wowy dreams. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, when you're a monastic, you hear everything. People come and ask you about everything. So some, I had a lot of those people asking me, what do I have? I had this dream. What does it mean? Does it mean this? Does it mean that? Does it mean the other thing? I have no idea. So I asked one lama, I said, how do I respond when people ask those questions? And he had he gave a very good response. He said, "Interpret the dream in a way that it will encourage the other person to practice the Dharma." Yeah, because they want some kind of interpretation, so you can give it some interpretation. You know, um, you know somebody. I'm just making something up. You know. Somebody, you know, a monster was chasing them, and then they just turned around to the monster and and said, you know, hello, namo guruvya, namo buddhaya, namo dharmaya, namo sangaya. And then they woke up and like, what does that mean? Yeah, this monster was chasing me, and then I turned around and I said the refuge, what does it mean? Does it mean that... Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha were there and they were saving me. Does it mean, you know, I'm on the verge of realization? Uh, what does the, you know, dream mean? And if somebody asked me that now, I would say, 
Uh, well, you know, it could. I don't say it is, because I have no idea what their dreams mean. But I say it could mean that the monster tracing you was, you know, all your afflictions, and now you're coming to a point in your practice where you are turning to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha for refuge because you really want to change, and that's something really good. That's what I would say to somebody now, you know, and just give a possible interpretation. Yeah, And then the person says, oh, yeah, it could mean that. Then they feel kind of confident what it is. Whereas if I say, it is this, then first of all, I would be lying. And second of all, that might, you know, then they might thinking, oh, this really is. Okay. Okay, just just some tips. Because eventually, you know, People will ask you these kinds of questions if they haven't already. What do you think, Isla? I fully agree with Venerable. Dreams are dreams. They are. They may mean something, but when one is looking for some kind of a realization, it's in their mind that they have to look. Mm-hmm. Somebody, some, sometimes people ask, does that mean that I have bodhicitta? That I saw someone, Bodhisattva, in the dream. That's very weird. Bodhicitta, if you have a nod, you have to look inside and not look for some sign and say, now I have Bodhicitta. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, His Holiness tells the story of one Western meditator, I think I know who it is, but I'm just guessing and I'm not going to say, who went to him and said, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I've reached the first boomy. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the first boomy. And, uh, you know, his holiness said, how do you know? And he, he, he gave something, I can't remember exactly what he said, something like, well, I had a dream of a lot of bodhisattvas. And his holiness said, well, did you also have, and then he listed all these different states or or qualities that a first Bhumi bodhisattva has. And said, do you have all of these? And um, no, unfortunately he didn't. Okay. So this is like that book, um, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, or you know, however it is. You get all excited, and then, you know, it's, you're not out of samsara yet. Keep going. Okay, so we'll stop here.